So, uh, before we start, I just want to make a comment on uh, believing in how faithful God is and God's timing. And we have a little evidence this morning. Um, the worship theme this morning was what? Uh, the sermon today is about Jesus, the King of Kings. No idea. Uh, this was not planned. This was not on purpose. Some of the verses that we're talking about this morning, we're talking about today. Um, I think this is on purpose. God's trying to say something to us. So praise God. Um, when things like that happen, it helps out with my faith uh, and knowing that God is in control. So, let's get started. Um, <clears throat> We're starting the Gospel of Mark. We're actually going to be covering chapters 1 through 8 over the next several weeks. And then we'll do 9 through 16 next year. But in between, we're actually going to do a book of the Old Testament, uh, Esther. This works out pretty well because the first half of Mark 1 through 8 stands out from the rest of the book. The first half is is actually a build-up to chapter 8, verse 29 where one of Jesus' 12 disciples states clearly and publicly that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. So the first half of the book is all about showing that Jesus is the Messiah with that climax of finally one of his disciples realizing and saying, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the anointed one. And then the second half of the book is all about what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah, including his death and his resurrection. Now, there are four Gospels in the New Testament. Uh, we will talk a little more later about what Gospel means. But I thought that we should just take a moment and talk about what the key message of all the Gospels are. Um, it's incredibly important. This is the story of Jesus. He is the Son of God who was prophesied for thousands of years before him. He used to be the Savior of mankind. Jesus is the Son of God, is the Son of God. Uh, he's part of the Trinity of God, that is, one God and three persons. God the Father, God the Son, that is Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus came to earth as a man, so he is fully God and fully man, and he came to earth uh, through the virgin birth of Mary. His primary purpose in coming to the earth uh, as a man was to be a propitiation for our sins, a payment for our sins. Romans 3.10 says, None is righteous, no, not one. And Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us, every single human being saved Jesus, every single one of us has sinned. And further, sin has a cost, it has a consequence, it has a wage and Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. When you go to work, right, you get a wage for the things that you did. The wages of your sin is death. And that is eternal death. That is damnation. Separation for God from God forever. That is hell. And it is very, very real. JP once told me that his favorite phrase in the Bible was, But God. <clears throat> but Jesus paid for the sins. But God sent his son to pay for your sins. And the rest of Romans 6.23 says, But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That was his primary purpose on this earth, to die for your sins, to become sin on your behalf. On the cross, God treated Christ, Jesus Christ, as if he had lived your life. He was punished for your life, for your sins, so that God can now treat you as if you had lived Jesus' life. You see how that works? He died for all of your sins, and now God sees you as if you had lived Christ's life. That is salvation. That is the free gift of Christ. That is why he came. And all that is required is acceptance that you are a sinner and that Christ is your Savior. That's all that's required. That is the key message of all four Gospels. Keep that in mind as we study Mark. For believers, this is an opportunity to refocus your life. 
What is the most important thing? Jesus, your Savior, number one. Most important thing. For those who have not accepted this free gift, this is an opportunity to learn more about it. Um, to learn about Christ as your Savior and to accept Him as your Savior. The Gospel of Mark in particular stands out among the four, though. It is the shortest, it is the most succinct, uh, and commonly it's, it's the last thought of, of the four. But Mark, I believe, is actually the most dramatic in many ways. It gets straight to the point. He skips all the fluff and he gets right to the point, and we'll see that over and over and over again. It's also the earliest of the Gospels. Now today we're focusing on Mark 1, 1 through 3. We're going to cover some history, some introduction, a little information on the author. Um, <clears throat> you should think of this as the foreword to a book, this section, 1 through 13. Mark is setting up the stage. He's telling you what the story is going to be about. He's giving you an introduction. Mark sets up the stage by announcing the coming of a king, Jesus, heralded by God's preordained messenger, John the Baptist, inaugurated publicly at Jesus' baptism and confirmed by his victory in battle against Satan in the wilderness. Now, before we get into this, before we start talking about the background, I'd like for us to stop and, uh, and pray, ask for God's guidance and his blessing. Let's pray. Lord, Father God in heaven, I just pray that you would help us to come before you humbly today, um, knowing that you are God uh, and that we are your creation and that uh, we owe life to you, we owe salvation to you, uh, that we in and of ourselves are not worthy, but you make us worthy through Christ. I just pray that your word would go out uh, and that it would be true, uh, that I would not get in the way, Lord, uh, and that everybody here would be open, not distracted, but focused on you. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So, authorship and themes. Obviously, the title of the book, The Gospel of Mark, or the, I'm sorry, yeah, The Gospel According to Mark, the author, at least according to the text, seems to be Mark. Now, this is John Mark. This has some significance if you remember who John Mark is. This is that guy who traveled with Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey and then abandoned them. He was tasked with the logistics. He uh, planned their travel, money, food, where they're going to sleep, that sort of thing. And one day, for reasons we are not told, he leaves. Uh, Acts states it very candidly, saying that he deserted them. This word is the same word in Greek used for soldiers deserting the battlefield. And then before the second missionary journey, Barnabas wished to take John Mark along again, and Paul was so convinced that this young man was not to be trusted with the ministry that he refused to the point of splitting up the group. So Paul was very serious about not trusting this man. However, if you remember of our uh, study in Colossians several months ago, John Mark resurfaces many years later in the New Testament account. He's one of several companions with Paul in Rome in his first impris imprisonment. Paul says of John Mark that he is a comfort. And then he makes sure that the Colossians know to welcome him. So something drastic happened in John Mark's life. Uh, the reasons for his abandonment, we have no idea. The text does not tell us. We can make some pretty good assumptions. Before he left, they had a really hard time. They ran into a lot of tribulation, a lot of problems. Probably he was scared and exhausted. But I think that John Mark completely understood the implications of what he was doing. I think he understood that what he was doing was poor judgment. Because you'll note in Acts, he does not return to Antioch when he leaves them. He had been in Antioch for some time uh, serving the church. But instead of going back to Antioch, he goes back to Jerusalem, it says, to his mother's house. I think that he didn't want to face the Christians in Antioch who had actually commissioned him as a missionary. But evidently this man had grown up by the time he's in Rome with Paul. He'd gotten over his fear or his self-centeredness or whatever it was that kept him um, from being a good minister of the word. From Peter's letters and early church documents, we know that he traveled with Peter and that he served Peter in the ministry. 
And what's key here is that he served with Peter in Rome. It should be noted that Rome was not a friendly place for Christians at this time. Uh, This is during Nero's great persecution of the Christians. Christians were literally thrown to the wolves to be torn apart for entertainment. Christians were killed basically for nothing. They were strung up in Nero's gardens to be lit on fire alive as candles. This is not a friendly place for Christians. So John Mark, the deserter, went from hiding at mommy's house to working with Peter in the most dangerous city in the world for Christians at that time. He had become a godly man, a mature man. And from early church documents, we know that this gospel is written by Mark based on the preaching of Peter. Uh, Evidently, many wished to have a transcript of the message that Peter was preaching. And that's simply the origin. Mark, the deserter, a servant, not a great preacher, not an apostle, simply wrote the words of one who was a great teacher and a great apostle. And thus, he's given this incredible responsibility and even blessing. This man, who obviously was not worthy of it, was given this amazing opportunity. There's a very important message here for us. They got all the writers of the Gospels. We have Matthew, the tax collector, Mark, the deserter, Luke, who was a Gentile, not even supposed to be in the fold originally, according to the Jews. And then you've got John, who's this brash, overbearing, self-centered man. And then think of all the other writers. Paul, for example, all of them are sinners. And some of them have pretty incredible sins. They fail. Every one of them. But God ordained them to a great purpose, to write his scripture. God uses sinners. The message for you today is don't feel like God can't use you because of your sin. Don't let your sin hold you back from God using you. God uses who he will use. The point is not that you need to be ready or that you need to be worthy. The point is that you need to be willing. You need to simply be willing to say yes to God before he asks anything of you. That's it. God uses sinners. So we know that Mark was in Rome during the writing of this book, but why did he write it and who was his audience? As we've already said, this time period in Rome was very dangerous. Uh, The culture didn't like Christians. In fact, there were lies spread and publicated about Christians at this time, and Romans believed them. One particularly famous one that you may have heard was that Christians were cannibals. And so this is based on communion, right? There's the symbolism of the bread and the juice or the wine uh, for the body of Christ and the blood of Christ, symbolism. But it was said in Rome that Christians were actually eating flesh and drinking blood. So Mark wrote this work and, and even gave out many copies, evidently, for two reasons. One, to remind Christians who Christ was and to embolden their spirits, to give them faith. One of the main themes of this book, we will see, is Christ is the suffering servant. Uh, Mark highlights that Christ was lied about as well, just like these Christians. That he was abused as they are abused, that he was oppressed, and he was even martyred like so many Roman Christians were being martyred at this time. The Christians in Rome could relate to this story, and thus their faith increased. Second reason, Mark wrote this for the purpose of bringing men and women to faith in Jesus Christ. Mark knew his audience well, his writing style, the vocabulary he uses, the way he structures his sentence. His sentences are geared to a population living in the capital city of the Roman Empire. He's writing to Greeks. He's writing to the Roman Gentiles. This book was not specifically written to Jews. That's important. So this means you'll see two things in the book. So keep an eye out for them. One, an absence. Mark uses very, very little Old Testament scripture quotes. All the other Gospels are chock full of it. Mark 
only uses what's necessary. Secondly, Mark will make it very apparent over and over again that the cult of the emperor, that is the worship of Caesar as, as God and as Savior, is necessarily at odds with Christianity. And he will over and over again make the claim that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the true God of the world and not Caesar. So this is going to butt heads very quickly. So some major themes. Jot these down. By the way, if you hadn't noticed, now that we have our fancy little bulletins, space on the back to take notes. So jot this down. Here are the three consistent themes in Mark that you're going to see throughout 1 through 8, and then again, 9 through 16. One, Jesus the suffering servant. We've already said it. Mark covers this exhaustively. Um, Christ is the suffering servant promised, with the climax, of course, being his death on the cross as a propitiation for sin. Second, Jesus is the king of the world. We're going to see Mark over and over again making this clear. Again, this is at complete odds with Caesar and with the Roman culture. And finally, Jesus is the Son of God. And this has great implications. And you're going to see this in Mark. Jesus being the Son of God, firstly, means that he must also be God. And we're going to see that. So with that, we'll move into the body of our text, starting with Mark 1.1. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And I recommend that everybody opens up their Bibles to Mark 1. Um, I will not keep the text up here but it's important for you to see it. I'm reading out of the ESV if that matters to you. <clears throat> the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now in the first century, in this part of the world, it was common for the first line of a work of scholarship to also be the title. So the true title of this book actually is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now it's a good time for us to mention that the word gospel did not mean then what it means today. Today, gospel commonly means one of two things. One, it's referring to the four books that tell about the story of Jesus' life. So we refer to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as the gospels. And secondly, it refers to the message of salvation, the good news of the forgiveness of sins that Christ has provided. But in the first century, the word gospel did not refer to a book, a writing, a specific message of any kind, and it did not refer exclusively to the good news of salvation provided by Jesus Christ. It will very quickly in history become that, at least for Christians, but at the time of Mark's writing, it meant literally good news or glad tidings. <clears throat> in both the Septuagint, and that's the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uh, and in Greek literature, we see a lot of examples of this word being used. And in Greek, it's euangelion. It's used for reports of victory from the battlefield. Good tidings, good news from the battlefield. Another really important example, uh, there are these inscriptions that have been found from Roman public announcements, and almost exclusively about the emperor, something really important happening. For the ascension of a new emperor to the throne, uh, for the emperor's birthday, one example is from 9 BC. It's of Emperor Octavian Augustus, and it reads... The birthday of the God was for the world the beginning of joyful tidings, Evangelion, which have been proclaimed on his account. Further, in the Septuagint, in Isaiah 52 and 61, uh, this word is used for the good news of God's final saving act when peace and release from oppression would be given to his people for all time. Now, for the Romans, this would be unmistakable. They're used to this, this public proclamation using this word, evangelion. They know that when they see this word, this means, I'm telling you something important, something drastic is happening, there will be a change. Something very important is happening right now. Mark is announcing to them that Jesus had come, and this event would bring about a radically new state of affairs for all of mankind. Further, one other note, in the Greco-Roman world, this word, evangelion, actually only ever appears plurally. Good tidings among other good tidings. In the New Testament, it only 
occurs singularly. The good news. The only good news. Now for the Jew reading this, they would immediately recognize this statement as a statement about God. Jews at this time were very familiar with the Hebrew text. Basically, every Jew, a blue-collar worker Jew was familiar with the Hebrew text in Hebrew and in Greek. So they would know this. They would see that word euangelion and they would know that it meant God's amazing plan for their salvation. Uh, Mark is making a very clear statement to them if they are reading this, that this is the fulfillment of God's promises heralded by Isaiah. One very important example that we should jot down, Isaiah 40, verses 9 through 11. I will read it quickly. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. There's our word. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. In the Septuagint, this word is used twice here. The Jews would know this. Mark is saying, Hail, this is your God. He comes with might and he comes with gentleness. And this person is Jesus Christ. This is a declaration of the coming of a king. The king. God is coming down from the heavens and he is king of kings. And Mark makes this very clear when he calls Jesus the Christ. Now, we use that word Christ a lot. We refer to Jesus just as Christ. And now we're going to talk about what that actually means. The word Christ and the word Messiah are synonyms, and they have the exact same definitions. Christ in the Greek is Christos, means anointed. Messiah comes from the Hebrew, Meshiach, where it means anointed or the anointed ones. Now, if you remember of our study on David, the king of Israel was called the anointed one. This term is used exclusively for two things in the Old Testament. It is used for the king of Israel and for the expected coming redeemer, the chosen one who was coming in God's purpose, the one who would redeem God's people, the one promised in the prophets. So when we call Jesus, Jesus Christ, we are saying Jesus, the anointed one, or probably better in the English, King Jesus. And the name Jesus, does anybody know what it means? Yeshua? To save or to deliver. So when you say Jesus Christ, what you're saying is the king who will deliver us, the king who is the deliverer, the king who has saved us. That's what Jesus Christ means. We have a, I think we had a common misconception that when we say the word Messiah or Christ, that that means Savior. I think that's how we use it. The reality is that Jesus means Savior. Christ means King. This is your King. Finally, What is this king's credentials? What is his lineage? Mark says that he is the son of God. And this is very important. To Romans, lineage is very important for their emperor. Their emperor has to come from the right family or he doesn't have the credentials. To the Jew, this is everything. If you don't have the proper lineage, you aren't even a Jew. This is everything. But unlike the other gospel writers who go into far more detail about Christ's earthly lineage... Mark focuses on the most important aspect. He ignores the rest. He goes right to the big picture. King Jesus is the Son of God. And thus, he has all rights and privileges of the King of Kings. So, is Jesus your King? And we all know the Bible school answer to that, right? We all know the right answer. But the answer has nothing to do with what you think, what you feel, or what you believe. It's all about how you act. If Jesus is your king, then you should be in service to him as your Lord, as your protector, and as your provider. And you should trust him for these things. How often do we toil and strive to protect ourselves, to provide for ourselves? And we end up serving ourselves. And this is not acting as if Jesus is your king. 
Now, in ancient days, a bad king could be usurped and could be usurped very quickly if he did not provide those two main things, protection right, and provisions for life. But when he did provide those two things, he was served gladly. He was trusted in. He was seen as a redeemer even. But today, we have this feeling in our culture of independence. I can make it on my own. I don't need anybody else. I can take care of myself. And I don't want any authority over me. We have a good king. We have the best king. And he has provided all that is required for salvation. He has even promised that if we trust in him, he will provide what we actually physically need as well. So ask yourself, do you serve your king? Or are you usurping his authority in your life? Are you making you the king in your life? Is Jesus your Christ? Now, that's a huge question, and it's not easy to answer. Um, So I'm just going to leave you with a little bit of homework. Very simple. Ask yourself this. This is your test. Is Christ your satisfaction? Is he the source of your peace, your comfort, and your satisfaction? Is there something else in your life that is the source of your peace, your comfort, or your satisfaction? If so, you should rethink who you are serving. Is it Christ, the King, your King? Or is it yourself? Or is it someone else? Or is it something else? That is your test. Where is your satisfaction? And a true King, moving on, has a herald. When the emperor traveled in Rome or he returned from victory, a herald would go before him in the first century. He would go out to prepare the citizens. He would announce his coming and make sure the citizens were ready to meet him. For Jesus, that was John the Baptist. Mark 1, 2 through 8. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So Mark starts out by quoting Isaiah. Now we should take a moment and mention that Mark actually quotes a combination of Malachi and Isaiah. Malachi 3.1 and Isaiah 4.43. Now this bothers some people. Mark said he's quoting Isaiah, but it's, it's not from just Isaiah, it's from Malachi and Isaiah, and there's actually a little bit in there from Exodus. So is he lying to you? Is he just wrong? Does this put some doubt on the scripture? You're thinking of it in the wrong context. Uh, we need to realize that this incredible need we have, that when you quote something, you have to make sure you quote it word for word, and then you also make sure you reference exactly who it was and exactly where it came from. That's a Western phenomenon. That's Western. Uh, It's actually relatively new in history as well. Uh, Even now, in some Asian cultures, it's considered condescending to reference who you're quoting because what you're saying is that the reader wouldn't already know that, when obviously they would. So for Mark, at this time, in this culture, it's completely valid for him to write this way. What he actually does is very common. He references several works uh, that's in a larger work, So it's all from one work, the scripture of God. And he quotes, he references the most important of the authors, Isaiah. He does this for two reasons. Um, Either because you would already know where he's quoting all this from because you know the scriptures that well, or because you don't know them, but the only name you would have recognized is Isaiah. Is at that time, even Gentiles knew who Isaiah was. He was a famous prophet. One other thing that we should notice here is the quote from Malachi. He actually changes it. Malachi 3.1 reads, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. 
This is God saying, my messenger will go before me. Mark says, I send my messenger before you, Jesus. He's making a very clear statement here. Jesus is God. This messenger, John, um, actually we'll back up a little bit. The messenger that's supposed to come from Malachi 3 was thought to be Elijah. The Jews believed that that would be Elijah. Luke chapter 1 confirms that John is the prophet coming in the spirit and power of Elijah. Jesus in Matthew 11 and in 17 says John the Baptist is Elijah. Now it's a common misconception that the Jewish people at that time were expecting Elijah to come to herald the new human king, the Messiah, uh, a king coming in, da- in, in, uh, in David's spirit and power. That's not what they were expecting. They were expecting the Messiah, a king like David, to come. But what they actually believed, and this is true, we can see this in a lot of pre-Christian texts, they were expecting Elijah to come to herald God. So they were expecting two things, and they misunderstood that they were the same thing. They thought a king like David was coming, the Messiah, the Anointed One, and they thought Elijah was coming to herald God himself. They didn't realize this is the same thing. So Mark, knowing this, is making sure that the Christian, or I'm sorry, the Jewish reader knows who he's claiming Jesus is. Mark is telling any Jewish reader who understands the text at all that Jesus is God right off the bat. And if this is the herald of the king who is God, and the herald is meant to prepare the people for the coming of the king, we need to look at John's message. What was his message of preparation? Uh, Very simply, he says, repent. Because the Messiah is coming, and he will separate the chaff from the wheat. The people did not understand at this time that, that this was Elijah even. They didn't, Jesus had to tell them that John is Elijah. They didn't understand it. But they did understand that John was preaching that the Messiah was coming. And the Jewish people fully expected the Messiah to come. And they expected him to come as a conqueror king like David to release, release them from their bondage under Rome. And what they didn't want was to be left in the cold outside. They didn't want to be left outside of the kingdom of the Messiah, the king. So naturally, the country of Judah and Jerusalem come flooding out to hear. They want to, they want to hear this message because they're afraid. They know they're rebellious and they know that they haven't heard from a prophet of God in 400 years. And they understand and they see that this is truth. They're afraid. They do not want to be separated as the chaff. John was preaching a repentance from sin. In Matthew 3, we have a little bit more here. Um, John says this, The Messiah will come with his winnowing fork, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is, this is a picture we should have. Christ has a rake, and he's got a pile of wheat and chaff, and the chaff is the stuff you throw away. That's the, the stems and the brush and the straw, the things you throw away. And he's separating them, and he's putting the wheat in his barn, and he's taking the chaff, and he's putting it in a bonfire. He's burning it. This is a prophecy still to come. When Christ returns again, it will be final judgment. Those who have accepted Christ as their Savior, the wheat, will be kept for eternity and peace and joy. Those who have not are the chaff. They will be burned. This is talking about hell, eternal separation from God. It is described as torment, eternal burning fire, and it is real. So John's preaching moved the people of Israel to come out to seek repentance from their sins, to hear the truth about the Messiah, because they were afraid. This message is still true today. Now, preachers of the Bible don't like to bring hell up all that much. It makes us feel judgmental. It makes us feel rude and mean. Uh, People don't like to hear about hell. 
There's a little bit of truth to that. There have been many preachers in the past who have taken it too far. When they focus so much on the judgment, they don't even talk about the blessing. And that is taking it too far. But it's foolish and I think sinful as a speaker of the word to ignore this truth. Uh, People need to know this. Jesus is returning and he will separate the chaff from the wheat. If you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior, I am not judging you. I am pleading with you. This is the opportunity because when you die, that's it. That's your opportunity. If you die today and you have not accepted Christ, that's it. You are the chaff. And Jesus does not want that for you. He wants eternal life for you. But you have to make that choice. The alternative is death and punishment forever. It goes on forever. So you have to make a choice. So the people, they went out in droves to John and repented of their sins because they knew they were rebellious and they were afraid. Uh, The unfortunate reality is that after Christ's crucifixion, we know of only about 120 believers in Jerusalem. So all these droves of people that went out to hear John the Baptist, they did not truly repent or we would see more Christians in Jerusalem. So we must ask the question, what is true repentance? Because evidently, most of these people did not have it. Thayer's Bible Dictionary says that it is this. To change one's mind and to amend one's action with abhorrence to one's past actions. To change your mind, so you decide you were wrong, and then to amend your actions, to change your actions with disgust toward your past actions. That is repentance. Um, I've heard it described as turning around and going the other way. Therefore, to truly repent, repent, two things must happen. First, you must be sorrowful. I say this based on 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 10. For though I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that that letter caused you sorrow, though only for a while. I now rejoice, not that you were made sorrowful, but that you were made sorrowful to the point of repentance. For you were made sorrowful according to the will of God. So that you might not suffer loss in anything through us. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. We should feel sorrow for our sins. That's right and proper. It's good for us. But it shouldn't stop there. Feeling that sorrow for your sins, which is good, and then it's stopping, leads to death, leads to more sorrow, leads to self-loathing. That's not what's being said here. The godly sorrow for your sins should lead you to confess your sins and then to change and ultimately to have joy. So that's our second requirement. You must change your mind and change your actions. We have a little illustration. We all know and love Charlie Brown and the yearly strip that is Lucy pulling the football out from under Charlie Brown. Every year, same thing. She convinces Charlie Brown that she's not going to pull the football away. Sometimes she even says, I've changed, Charlie Brown. There's a few comics where she actually apologizes. You're right, I hurt your feelings. I'll, I'll hold it this time. And every single time, she pulls it away. Because, you see, Lucy has not repented of her actions. She might even say, what I'm doing is wrong, but she hasn't changed her actions. She continues to do what she wants to do. Talking about true repentance. Believing that your actions are sin and then changing your actions to align with God's will. Now this is not easy and it's not supposed to be easy. It's hard and it's meant to be. We can truly repent and we can truly have a change of heart. And we can try to change our actions and even change them for a time and then fail in that same exact way. The point is that we don't give up and that we try in faith and that we rely on the power of God. Because do we think that if we are actually relying on God's power that we would fail? 
The reason we're failing is because we're relying on our power. Our power fails us. God's power, the scripture says, never fails. And it is inexhaustible. I recently realized I had some sin in my life and I wanted to confess it to God. I went to God and I confessed and I made a commitment to change. It's good. But along the way, God brought to my mind other sin. He, uh, he convicted me of sins that I had no intention of confessing to him that day. And I realized in that moment that I didn't want to repent. Uh, I wanted to continue in that sin. I had this feeling that I was going to miss out on something. That I was going to miss out on something that would be fulfilling if I gave that up. And ultimately, I felt like I would just fail if I told God I, I was going to change. I just felt like I was going to fail. And, and my realization is that this was my, my football. This was my Lucy's football. I know it's wrong, but I didn't want to give it up. So what is your football? What is the thing that you don't want to give up? You may have confessed it. You may have confessed it over and over and over and over again, but it never seems to change. So you need to ask yourself the question, do you want to give it up? Do you actually want to? And friends, I'm here to tell you that we cannot give in to the lie that it doesn't make a difference. We're saved. That's fantastic. We're saved. We're guaranteed salvation. Amazing. Your sin still has effect in your life. That sin that you don't want to give up or that I don't want to give up, that sin can keep us from, from true fellowship with God, from true worship of God, from true prayer to God. It can keep you from growing. It can hold you down for years. We need to throw our footballs away. We need to accept that they are sin and decide that we want to change them. Now this is the problem that the people of Israel had. They went to John, they repented, they recommitted their lives to God, but most of them didn't have this true repentance. They didn't change. Now along with his preaching of repentance, John was very clear to the people who he was heralded. Who is this person who was coming? that he was preparing them for. Of course, they still didn't seem to recognize him when they actually did see him. Even his own disciples didn't recognize him for a long time. So let's look at John's heralding. He told them, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In the first century, the lowest of the lowest servants, the scum of the earth, were the ones who were given the task of untying the sandals and, and bringing them away. It was disgusting. To a Jewish person especially, this was disgusting. It was unclean. If you untied someone's sandals, probably a Pharisee wouldn't let you in the temple if he knew you did, because you were unclean. It was disgusting. John is saying, John, the first true prophet of Israel in 400 years is saying, I'm not even worthy to do that. So I'm less than that. You can't go lower. And he's lower than that compared to the one coming, Jesus Christ. So to the Jew, this should have been obvious. To those listening to John's preaching, they should have known what this meant because this couldn't have been an earthly king because even the earthly kings looked to the prophets for authority. And here was the greatest prophet in 400 years saying, I'm so low, I can't even touch his feet. Only God could fit this description. And then if that wasn't enough, John declares very clearly, I baptize you with water. The one who's coming will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Every account of the Holy Spirit and the Hebrew texts refers to God giving it or taking it away. Only God has control over who he gives and doesn't give the Holy Spirit to. Only God can fit this description. So it's incredible when we think about how long it took people to realize who Jesus was. John preached the coming of the Messiah. He warned the people of his arrival and he pleaded with them to repent. And they still didn't understand. And then one day... 
He just shows up. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now step back and imagine a moment. John is preaching to the crowds of people about the coming Messiah. Repent because he's coming. And then, out steps Jesus. Now, John 1 tells us that John the Baptist did not recognize Jesus. They were cousins, but evidently they hadn't spent time together as adults, or maybe even not since they were children. He didn't recognize him. The reason he recognized Jesus was because the Spirit showed him. The Spirit actually came down and showed him, this is Jesus. In John 1.29, it says that John the Baptist said to the crowds, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Time's up. Here he is. The Lamb of God has come. But what happens is utterly startling and offensive, at least to John the Baptist. Because Jesus has come to John the Baptist to be baptized. Now John preached a baptism of repentance, a symbol of confessing your sins and commitment to change and to be allied with God. So why would Jesus need to come to John to be baptized when John's baptism was for repentance? Now Mark doesn't actually give us the whole story here because John actually refuses. He says... Jesus, how could you come to me to baptize you? Come baptize me. You baptize me. I'm a sinner, and you're the Lamb of God. Matthew 3, 14 through 15. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness and then John consented Jesus says to John let it happen this one time I realize this seems offensive to you but let it happen this one time because it is required for me to fulfill all righteousness what does that mean you see John was given a God ordained task he was told to baptize all men who were willing to show that they are allied with God now that required for everyone else a repentance from sin as well, a turning around because they were in rebellion. But for Christ, this was symbolizing his submission to the Father. God the Father had commanded it, and thus Jesus complied. Simple as that. This is Jesus showing his submission. This is also Jesus symbolically identifying with sinners, sinners who actually did need to repent. Um, some authors say that he is making a resolution here to become sin on their behalf. This is also the God-ordained moment when Jesus would be proclaimed publicly as King and Messiah. This is his coronation. And two very important things happen here. The sky is torn open, the heavens are torn open, and the Spirit descends on him like a dove, and then God speaks. Visually, the Holy Spirit comes down and confirms this is the King of Kings. The wording here is that of a coronation. And it says that the heavens were torn open. This is a really big moment. And let me just make sure we're all aware, this was not something that Jesus saw. This is something that everybody there saw. The Gospels confirm. In the Septuagint, this word is used in 64.1 of Isaiah. It reads, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. The heavens opened. They tore. They tore. The only other time in the New Testament that this word is used, I believe, is when the veil in the temple is torn open to show that we now have access to God the Father. And then, like a dove, the Spirit descends. This is a great moment of clarity in God's character. The skies are ripped open. And the Spirit of God descends like a dove, peacefully, beautifully. 
Then the second important thing happens. Audibly, God the Father speaks to all present, and he says that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. He confirms this is the Son of God who thus must be God, and he is perfect and righteous and sinless. We have this same message today. The Messiah has come. The Messiah is alive. Jesus lives. And He is your Savior. The Father's witness is true today as well. Finally, Jesus is drawn out into the wilderness. And we'll cover it very quickly. Mark 1, 12-13, The Spirit immediately drove Him out into the wilderness. And He was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And He was with the wild animals. And the angels were ministering to Him. A lot of stuff happens here. Uh, the other Gospels give a lot more information. He was tempted in several ways. Uh, Christ uses Scripture in really good ways that we should, we should imitate. Um, he tells Satan to get lost, basically. He submits to the Father. There's all these really amazing things. And the important thing for us today is that Jesus was tempted by Satan. It says he was tempted by Satan and that he overcame This is important for us because Christ was fully man and fully God, and this is confirming that he was a free agent. He had choice. He was capable of making a choice, and he overcame. This means that Christ indeed is tempted, was tempted in all the ways that we have been tempted, and that because he overcame, we can overcome. This is also Jesus defeating Satan. And you'll see that this theme keeps going. From this point on, you will see over and over and over again, Jesus defeating Satan, showing his authority. This is Jesus, the coronated king of kings, going out to battle God's adversary and kicking his butt. And then as we'll see, at the cross, Jesus strikes the final blow. So quickly in conclusion, <clears throat> talked about Mark 1 through 13 of chapter 1. He very succinctly declares that Jesus is the King of Kings. He is announced as the Christ. He has the herald who goes before him. He has a, an inauguration where the Spirit and the Father confirm him. And he goes out to battle to show his strength and his authority. Jesus is our God. He is the Christ, which means our King. And we often do not act like it. So today we can make some simple steps to change that. We have to accept Him as our Savior if we have not already. That's step one. We must fully repent of our sins, which requires us to change our actions. And we must worship and glorify Him as the King of kings in our lives. Let's pray. Lord, Father, we just thank You so much for Jesus Christ. Um, Your perfect plan, God, which was something that none of us would have thought of, that You'd send Your Son to die for us. Lord, I just thank you for it and thank you that it makes uh, wise men look foolish um, and that it brings us peace. Praise your name. Amen.